0: morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John, John chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 31. And if we could get the, if the house lights aren't up, I think this light over here is not on. I don't know if we can. If we can't, you know, when you get older, the dark is a problem. (laughs) Need more light. (laughs) Unfortunately, I I am at that that age with a where with with the lights in my eyes start to dim. But um, what we're, just as you find your place, just to sort of know how we're sort of rolling here in the next little while. We've got one more week after this in John, and we'll finish up John's. So I don't know, Mike, how long we've been in here, a year or so in John. We've been here, been in John for probably a year or better. And uh, where we're going next is to the Old Testament. We're going to Jonah. We're going to spend a, a, at least four weeks there. And uh, and then we're going to the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at the seven letters to the churches. So we're going to spend at least eight weeks there, maybe maybe nine. And then we're going to the book of James. And, uh, so Lord willing, that's that's where the Lord's taken us. Uh, I felt, by the way, as your pastor, specifically that the Lord wants us to look at the seven churches in Revelation. So be thinking and praying and and towards that as we go to the Old Testament to Jonah, and then to Revelation. So, but right now we're in John 20, verse 19. Let's stand to our feet. I, I'm going to read all of this. It's a lengthy passage, so if you can stand, stand. If you can't, sit down. John 20, beginning of verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, then place my fingers into the marks of those nails, and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in His name. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we tremble and celebrate as we read these words, there are peace-filled, life-changing, profound truths. There are the very purpose for why we exist in this text today. There is peace for us, for those who will believe and for those who do believe. Lord, grant us this peace today. Peace with you. Peace with ourselves. Peace with others. Our world needs this today, and Lord, we depend on you. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If you got your sermon notes, notice at the top the main idea Jesus' resurrection brings lasting peace through our living Lord. Micah's already mentioned, and it, it's true. All of life, for, for I would say everyone, even those who are not conscious of it, is a quest for peace. Peace within and peace without. You said, yeah, but how about over there in Afghanistan? Or how about the radicals who are exercising jihad? Study what they believe. It is a quest for peace. Peace their way. You could almost say it is pseudo-peace, a false peace or a temporary peace versus a lasting peace this morning. We long for political peace. We feel better when our group is in charge. And look what happens every four years when it turns. Even those who profess the name of Christ lose their peace because their God didn't get elected. Economic peace. We will just be happy when we get the right amount of zeros. Chemically induced peace. Peace. Pastor, I can't relax at night unless I open the bottle or pop the lid. People induce peace. People-based peace. I have peace if I have the right mate. (laughs) Or if I don't. If I got a girlfriend, everything's good. If I got a boyfriend, everything's good. If not, if things are not well there, no peace. Why is this so important to those who believe or those who don't believe? Peace is important. It's wired in. We can't help it. This is this is the very Imago day stamped onto your soul and to everybody's soul that you will ever meet. Those you work with long for peace. It is because John has, for us, divided up people into two categories. Those who are dead and those who are alive. Those who are in light and those that are in darkness. Those who live in one kingdom, those who live in another. And there is no in between. It matters to everybody because it matters. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And for us as believers, it is critical that we experience Peace and joy now because there is a mission now. And without peace and without joy, we'll never see the mission. These are the gifts of the resurrection. They're gifts. Peace and joy is a gift God offers to you and to me. And so is the mission of God. It is a gift to be part of it no matter what it costs us. So here's the question. Can we look at this backwards this morning in our own life, in our own soul, and ask ourselves, if, is there any mission? And if there's not, could it be there is no mission because there is no peace? The Lord died to give you peace. But our core verse today is verse 21. Take a look at it. As the Father sent me, so I send you. This is where we must get to, to wrestle with what that means and what that looks like. And so, for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at what it means to follow Christ. I've got two questions, and John has given us two object lessons. Today's object lesson is Thomas. The first question, what do we need? What do we need to follow Christ? We see the problem. We see our need really... In verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So why were the doors locked? You may speak to me today. Why were the doors locked? It's an easy question. Easiest one of the day. That's right. They were scared. I mean, they, they, they thought they've killed, our, they've killed Jesus, and now we can simply pick off the remnants. They were afraid, so the doors were locked. John said there was another functional reason, because Jesus was going to appear in his glorified body in the midst of a locked room. Fear. That's the reason. That's the problem. Notice verse 20. It says, when he had said all these, this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, if you went to the other Gospels, they focused on the fear. See, it was, it's always, in study scripture, you'll see this is true. There's always fear before there's peace. The other Gospels said when they saw Jesus, they thought he was a ghost. They were scared to death. And he had to say, don't fear. John's point is there's joy. Remember, John's always theological. He's teaching us something here. His point's joy, that Jesus' very presence brought peace, and peace always ha- is accompanied by an expression. They're joyful, they're happy. One problem Thomas didn't come to church that morning, <laughs> Thomas just wasn't feeling it. I heard that before. I just wasn't feeling it this morning. It wasn't there. So what do we need? Well, there's fear there. You see it? It Reveals the need. What do we need? Peace. You can't just get rid of fear. Something's got to go in its place. The Lord is our source of lasting peace. He says this to them and says it more than once. Peace be with you. And you say well wasn't that just a formal greeting it it was but remember what he said to him before he left them flip back with me to John 14 verse 27 on 14 27 he said peace i leave with you my peace i give you not as the world gives do i give to you let your heart let not your heart be troubled neither let it be Afraid. And they were in a locked room. Afraid. A.W. Pink gets the quotes of the week this week in my study. Says this. Well might he have said, Jesus, shame upon you. But instead he says, peace be unto you. He would remove from their hearts all fear which his sudden and unannounced appearance might have occasioned. Listen listen to what he says. Having put away their sins, he could now remove their fears. You see the need for the resurrection. Talked about that last week. Removal of sin and death. Now he zeroes in on our fear. Jesus is the source of peace. I struggled this week how to explain this peace. Do I call it internal, external peace? That's good. It's also both relational and experiential. It is relational. We've talked about this last week. We've got to have peace with God. This is the beginning of it. This is why the temporal pieces don't work in your life nor in the world's life. We read this last week, I believe, Romans three twenty-three. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24. We all are born without peace. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received. That is propitiation, an important word for us to understand. It is that Jesus Christ is our wrath removing substitute, and he is the only one. And because he is alive, he has removed all that stands between us and God, thus bringing peace. Thus bringing favor, thus bringing blessings, thus bringing name. This peace penetrates, permeates, and overflows. That's the way it goes in our life. Peace with God begins to penetrate. And it begins to look like peace in ourselves. Peace with God is first. The reason you don't have peace in yourself maybe this morning is you have to ask, will you have peace with God First. And then it must penetrate. Philippians 4, 7 says this. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? This peace is not just out there. It's just not knowing we're not going to go to hell. It is a peace that permeates into our very core of who we are, into the very way we think. We begin to experience it inside ourselves first, and then it bubbles over. This is the point, you see, of why these temporal pieces, these things that I would call are oftentimes general graces of God and are wonderful, simply don't work. Because experiential peace without a relational peace is a nice meal in a fine restaurant that you forget in two days. Nothing wrong with it. Matter of fact, it was nice. But a week from now, you'll be sitting there going, what do we have over there? What?" It's gone. It's like a vapor. It is when we take the general graces of God and make them ultimate that are dangerous in your life, mine, and everyone else's. It is the things of addiction. It is when something that is fine and good becomes ultimate in our life. Like we said at the beginning, it is at the end of the day that says, because of the work I have and it's stressful, I just can't relax if I don't do fill in the blank. It is that that your warning lights should go on in your life and saying a good thing can become an ultimate thing. It can become a damaging thing in your life because it's not designed by God to be ultimate. Hobbies are good. They are not ultimate Political administrations are good. They are not ultimate. Physical exercise is essential, but it will not give you internal peace. Only Christ can do that. This peace comes by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. But listen, peace in yourself, you're going to have to fight for it. You hear me? It's just not automatic this morning. The peace you must fight for is that which you have been given, but you must ascribe to it. You must fight for it. The war in your life is the war between your ears. When you hear people who have spoken cursings into your life rather than blessings, you must fight to hear what God says of you. You are mine. And when you believe it, it permeates all of you, and it will bubble out in mission. The Lord is our source for lasting peace, and the Lord is our model for mission. This is—he goes right to it. Do you see it in verse twenty-one? He shows up to these shocked men and women. It was more than just the disciples in those locked rooms. Shows up, he speaks this, and he says, "As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you." This is John's great commission. Matthew goes to Matthew 28. Here John says he went right to the Great Commission when he he shows up in the disciples' life again. And mission requires two things. It requires holiness and it requires declaration. Mission requires Christ-like holiness. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 5. Plenty of places we could go, but let's just look at this one. Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's foot. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is essential for mission. It flows out of peace that in mission, our desire is to be like Christ. Salt has a preservative function And a revelatory function. It preserves and it reveals. The government is not this country's preserver. The government is not this country's purifier. Listen to me today. The church is. This country will rise and sink whether we sit in these pews till till Jesus comes back and do nothing with all the revelations Jesus has given us. We are responsible, brothers and sisters, while we're going to Revelation. We are responsible for the mission of God. And you've got to fight for the peace in your life in order to be a part of God's mission. We are the hope for this country. The people of God. The church's mission, see, it permeates all of who we are. It is why you work where you work. It is why you have the children you have. It is why your parents are here in your life. It is the purpose of mission. All of where we are and all of what we do, our Christ-likeness permeates all of it, and it has to overflow. The mission requires holiness. requires declaration just to quote all I'm going to say about declaration today we've spoke of it many times leon morris the church is a group of people who have been saved by Christ saving death and resurrection and who on the basis of that death and resurrection have been commissioned to bring the message of salvation to sinners everywhere only one question with that this morning how's that going How's that going in your life? There is no peace. There will be no mission. We need lasting peace. We need a Christ-like mission. But, man, this is important. We must have. We desperately need spirit-filled power. Verses 22 and 23 are tricky. just want you to, after all my studying, here's what I see here. And this is important. And it's beautiful. Is the question is when you read this, is is this a second Pentecost? If it is a second Pentecost, it's a little bit of a downer in compound contrast to the one that's coming. What is this about? I think the key is what I've been teaching for some time is that John's point is always theological, not always chronological. He's teaching us something theological. He is pointing somewhere. This is, as it were, serves for Jesus as a symbolic function of what is still to come in the disciples' life. For he is there, but he will not be there very much longer. More importantly, it is pointing to their greatest need. Now listen, what is their greatest need? Power from on high. They're in desperate need of power. For in not too long from now, those men that are in locked rooms will be standing up in the city where Jesus was crucified, proclaiming the gospel. What they need is power. Do you remember Genesis 1? On the day... Of the first creation, the Word went forth, sent by His Father, and brought all things into being through the power of the Spirit that hovered over the chaotic darkness. And the Word said, Let there be light. And the Spirit administered it, and there was light. In the same way, at the dawn of the new creation, Jesus breathes life into His church. And the gates of hell will not prevail until there is a full and final new creation. Again, A.W. Pink agrees and says it this way, Who can fail to see that here in John 20, on the day of the Savior's resurrection, the new creation had begun? Begun by the head of the new creation, the last Adam acting as a quickening spirit. Henceforth, it is in the church That God's life will be known, and through the church that God's work will continue in the world. Did not Paul say, thus it is written, the first Adam became a life, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit? 1 Corinthians 15, 45. The danger is this: the church can do many things without the Holy Spirit. So can you. We can manage successful programs. I can go online and there are marketing strategies designed for churches. How do you attract people? How do you keep those people that you attract? How do we keep them entertained and engaged? We can do many things. But here's what we can't do. We cannot bring new life to one soul. For that is the Spirit of God's job. And we desperately need Him. We need Him in our life. And we need Him in our church. We need peace. We need empowerment. Look where He goes next. That the Lord Jesus, look at verse 23. He authorized spirit-filled forgiveness. Another tricky passage though, isn't it? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It's the scripture teaching that we have the individual power to forgive sins or to not forgive them. Can we in fact impact people's relational with God when we just say no? It's not what He's teaching. The Bible cannot teach you in one place what it teaches you, just the opposite somewhere else. He's teaching us that it is the church that has been authorized by God to proclaim the terms of forgiveness to a lost world. The declaration of truth that comes from His word. We have the authority to say when someone repents and puts their faith in Jesus Christ, that according to the promise of God, they are forgiven. And that if someone does not do it, if they pray a hokey prayer, we, then we have no means to say that person who has peace with God. The terms of forgiveness is to repent of your sins and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. We have that authority. John Calvin says this, That this refers, forgiveness that is, is the sum of the gospel. He continues, the principal design of preaching the gospel is that men may be reconciled to God and this is accomplished by the unconditional pardon of sins. We've been given the authority to go on a mission for God, to live like Christ and to declare Christ. Call on men to repent and put their faith in Christ, and so we could just say, "Okay, let's sing." It's a good sermon, but he's got an object lesson to teach us. See, the object lesson is actually about lordship. You got to get this, because in Baptist land, there's floating around th- this idea that he can be your savior maybe when you're eight, and when you get old and you don't have nothing better to do, then he becomes your lord. It's wrong. Following Jesus is lordship. We follow him as Lord. And if you're not following him as Lord, you are lost in your sin. Enter Thomas as the object lesson. Thomas the disbeliever. You say, Stephen, I don't know whether I agree that he was a disbeliever or not. It's fine. There's people who believe he was just Stuck in grief and didn't see it. I think the text is clear. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into the side, I will never believe. I'm going to talk about this in small group. I hope you're a part about doubt. Doubt's an important conversation. Just want to help us understand doubt in your life and in your children's life is inevitable. And sometimes it's dangerous. There are different kinds of doubt. There is a doubt that is a genuine quest for truth and the willingness to believe it. And we see all through Scripture and all through our life that God oftentimes blesses that. But Thomas is not unsure. Thomas is not puzzled. Thomas has stubbornly rejected the news of Jesus' resurrection. Thomas has drifted into a state, a hardened state of unbelief. We could even see it by the fact that he wasn't into fellowship to start with. The longer you were stained from fellowship in the body of Christ, the more dangerous it becomes in your life. The truth is that COVID. Many churches have seen 30% of their congregation leave and not come back. Why is that? We could have that conversation, couldn't we? First John says, They went out from us because they were not of us. If they would have been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out among us so that their works might be shown. They were never of us. It's a scary passage, but it's the truth. Thomas, the disbeliever, you got to feel this. Enter Jesus Christ. To this hardened guy who all the disciples said, He's alive, He's alive. He said, I ain't going to believe it. If he's that alive, why don't He just show up? Jesus shows up. Locked doors again, by the way. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. He said to Thomas, see, Jesus knew what happened the first time, didn't he? Put your fingers here. See my hands? Put your hand and touch me. Don't believe. Don't disbelieve. Stop doubting. Believe. Romans 5 gives us this good news to all of us. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but... Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Praise the Lord. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Though he was stuck in his unbelief, yet Jesus shows up in his life because he is merciful. And what we see is Thomas' confession. And he was public. Thomas says, in front of his God, in front of the disciples. My Lord and my God. You will not find in all of the Gospels any clearer profession of faith than that of Thomas. I don't know why, when I'm listening to people talking to other people from other religions, I'm sitting there going, John 20, 28, John 20, 28. You've got to know this passage. Read it in any language doesn't matter. He says the same thing. He calls Jesus his Lord and his God. Could he just been like excited? Just misspoke, you know? What presidents do that way? They don't make mistakes. They just misspeak. Everywhere else in the Bible that you see somebody bow down whether they are worshiping or Paul and Barnabas in Acts Acts 14, or whether it's a man bowing down before an angel, you always see a correction. Don't you worship me. I'm not God. It's no correction. He confesses. That is, he comes into agreement. Confessing is an agreement. It is agreeing with God about your sin and about the only remedy for that sin. I love where Jesus goes, verse 29. He says, Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. See, John is taking us somewhere. He's transitioning to see. You need to see in order to believe to the, to the truth of Christians and to his church that believing is seeing. It is that if you do not see Jesus through the eyes of faith, you cannot behold Him. That's why I believe firmly in my own conviction. Faith comes first. You've got to have faith in order to see. Faith is the ability to behold who Jesus is, to confess Him for who He is, and to follow Him with your very life. What does it mean to believe? It means there is both a confession... But there is a commitment. Look at it, and Thomas is like, there is a commitment. Thomas' commitment is personal. My Lord and my God. Yes, we must hold to certain truths, but this is not some kind of intellectual exercise because you can teach a five year old to regurgitate things that you want them to say. We can memorize things. Like we memorize the Bill of Rights or the Constitution or a test that we have on Friday, does that bring salvation? This truth must be only believed. It must be internalized. It must permeate into every fabric of your being, to your mind, your body, and your soul. But there's another element to belief, isn't there? A relational element, a commitment. It's not only simply internalizing the truth of God in your life, into all of your life. It is a commitment between one person to another person. That's what he's saying, isn't it? As far as who else was in the room at that moment in time of his moment of salvation, it was simply my Lord and my God. John wants you to hear in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He not only called Him Lord, which was, you are Yahweh of the Old Testament. Everywhere, that's the, when the light come on in their life, by the way. When all of a sudden, he realized, He's the Lord, He's Yahweh. Everywhere in the Old Testament that it said Yahweh, that was Jesus. Now He says, Jesus is God. Was the one in the beginning. He's the Word. He doesn't utter this in some kind of detached intellectual exercise. It was personal. Do you see it? Muslims call Allah the God, Christians call Jesus our God. It's personal. We have a relationship with Him. And we commit ourselves personally to Him and to Him alone. And if you haven't done that, you're not saved. This is the danger. I've got myself in trouble ever since I started preaching for mentioning this. Don't care. This is why it's dangerous to provide people a little prayer by which they repeat. Because that prayer could have a clear confession of faith in it. But how do we know that they have committed themselves to Christ? Because somebody flew into a town, got 20 or 200 people to say a prayer, and then got on his plane and left? No, evangelism is to move into an area and to see Christ formed in their life and not leave until it is. It is to see that person that made a commitment to Christ. That's what it is to help to evangelize and to make disciples. That's why we partner with churches to see disciples made and formed into a town that we go to. Confession. Listen, one of the most important things I'm saying this morning. Confession without commitment only serves to soothe a person's conscience on their way to hell. Confession without commitment only serves to soothe a person's conscience on their way to hell. What if Jesus wouldn't come back to Thomas? What if he didn't come back? Thomas would have filled that passage that Jesus said would have happened. One day Thomas would have stood before the Lord and he would have said, Lord, Lord. Didn't I follow you for three years, Lord? Didn't I heal people in your name? Didn't I do mighty works in your name? Didn't I hand out the bread and the loaves and the fishes? Wasn't I with you in the upper room? Didn't you wash my feet? And Jesus would have said, depart from me. Because I never knew you personally. You never committed yourself to me. Spirit of God must bring life. And a result of that, we confess and commit ourselves to Christ and to Christ alone. You see, there's a cost to following Christ. And Thomas's cost was real. It was real. It's real for all of us. We know Matthew 16. We've been experienced talking about the victory of the resurrection. I'm pulling tension in that now. Matthew 16, 24. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 25, For whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Answer, nothing. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels' glory out of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. If you haven't read John MacArthur's book, 12 Ordinary Men, or either one, 12 Ordinary Women. It's a good read. It's an easy read. He speaks of Thomas there. He gets his information from the church fathers. That if you want to see what happened to Thomas, just simply follow his trace. His traces go to South India. Where there are churches today in existence that trace their existence to Thomas. And tradition hold that is exactly where he was martyred. Thomas's cause is real. And so we have for this week and next the same question. Will you follow Jesus as Lord? We end up in verse 30 and 31 with this question. This is where we began our study some year or so ago. John said, what I have told you in this book, is just a part of things, just a piece. Now Jesus did many other signs in, this, in the presence of disciples not written in his book. Listen to what he says. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So my appeal is twofold then, right out of the text. That believes so that you might have peace. There's only one way to peace. It's through the new birth. It is to be born again, it is to be saved, it is to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is reminding us here that He is the object of our faith, He will not be used to just escape hell. He is the object. We are not simply saved by believing certain doctrines and getting mad about those that we don't like. We're not saved by trusting ourselves in our church membership or our traditions. Or to think a priest can actually forgive your sins and hold your soul. We are saved by responding in personal faith to the risen Lord Jesus Christ and believing in the biblical testimony of who He is and what He's done. and Committing our lives to Him and to Him alone. And so we echo Paul's appeal. We appeal to you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For it is Christ and Christ alone that for our sake made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the very righteousness of God. Believe, so that you might have peace. And believe, so that you might have abundant life. Listen, now, John is putting tension in all of Paul's writings that said, we long for the hope that is to come, and that's true. John is saying, we can have it now. We can have peace now. We can have joy now. We can have abundant life now. And it comes through being rooted and established in your faith. At the end of the day, John's gospel is not simply for the lost. If John was here. He was sitting there going, no, you've missed the point if you say that. My gospel's for you. I want you to have life. I want you to be peace-filled, joyful Christians now. I just don't want you to hover under a tree and hope Jesus comes tomorrow. There's a mission now. There's lost and broken out in the world now. And yet I feel like that father with his demon-possessed son, and what was it, Mark 9, that said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, Lord. But I don't believe as I should. Do you? John's for us. It's for us. It's not an academic exercise. It's not for you to memorize these propositional truths. Faith in itself is not the end. Christ is. Jesus desires for you and for me today that this peace permeate and bubble over into a lost and broken world. I ate lunch this week with two homeless men. If you do that enough, you, one day you'll realize that one of those men should have been me. I can tell you as I was eating lunch, I couldn't have been eating with kings and be any happier. It is when you have peace with God and peace in yourself that you don't miss the joy of that encounter with that person who only hope is Christ. And God puts you in their life. At that moment... There is no sweeter moment of joy and abundance in your life than that God in His providence has put you there for such a time as this. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 puts it this way. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, Established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So I'll close you with this. How do I know? How do you know that you're abounding in peace? How thankful are you? How grateful are you for all these things that our resurrected King gives us? And the most importantly, is peace with Him. Let's pray. Lord, we've come to just one sermon left in the amazing Gospel of John. And Lord, I, I thank You, and I know many thank You, that we are more like You because of this study. And so, Lord, continue your work in us. Because we have a long way to go. But we say with Thomas today, Jesus is our Lord and our God. And we will serve nor bow to no other but Him. And so now, Lord, we have come to worship you. To respond in worship through how we, what we say. Through how we sing. Through coming to the table to remember this great privilege of being in the family of God. To long for that day. We will sit down with the redeemed and with our risen king and enjoy you forever. And so, Lord, receive our worship. Receive our giving. Receive our offerings. And send us out to the broken. Be worshipped and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.